again, good morning to everybody. Good to see y'all here. Today we're going to, uh, again, continue our study of the book of Genesis. We're currently in Genesis chapter 12. And for today's reading, we're going to start in verse 10, and then we'll continue to uh, verses 13 for us. So when you find Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, would you please stand for reading God's word? Okay, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the, from the Negev, as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Amen. <clears throat> May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, again we come to you, Lord, asking for your power. Lord, enabling us to truly hear, perceive what uh, your truth is teaching us here, what your word is teaching us. I ask that you enable me to speak and deliver the message that you would have delivered this morning. Please grant clarity and accuracy. And Lord, open all of our hearts to receive your truth. May your word be effective in us, cutting us to the very depths of our being, exposing who we are to our own understanding before you. And Lord, bringing us into a stronger relationship with you, with a better understanding of your goodness, your grace, your mercy toward us, with a better understanding of who you are and how trustworthy you are. May it all be for your honor and glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, amen. Just a couple of things about where we are in our... uh, uh, just a little bit of context as we're moving through the book of Genesis here. Um, we've said from early on that, uh, uh, and I don't, I'm not going to go back and trace all of this, but uh, we've said from early on that what is what is happening here is um, th- there is a, a line a line being traced out, uh, a lineage, a line of God's people, the people of God. Or to say it another way, what what is happening here is God is creating a nation of worshipers for himself, calling a people out of the world, out of darkness into light, out of um, an existence of alienation from God and into intimate relationship to the true and living God. And so we've we've seen this in the life of Abraham. Um, He's called out of, Ur of the Chaldees, his homeland, 
out of a life of idolatry into a life of faith where he's, where he's literally going um, uh, where he doesn't, he, he doesn't know. He doesn't know where he's going. Sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? And the writer of Hebrews says uh, God called him. Abraham went in faith not knowing where he was going. But he knew this. He knew who he was following. He's following the one true living God who is trustworthy, who is faithful. After living in, um, after departing Ur and then living in Haran uh, until the death of his father, Abram came to Canaan, the land of Canaan. Now, this is the land that God will uh, promise Abram, but he's living here as a stranger, uh, as, a, as a sojourner. Um, and in fact, uh, it will be his descendants who wind up possessing the land. And then all of these things have uh, implications for us as Christians, and we'll try to unpack some of that as we go this morning. Now, I put a title in the bulletin, as I do characteristically, um, protect, Protected Promises. Protected Promises. And I, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, explain what I mean by that as we move along, and um, I think that's the main point that the author is getting across to us here, that is, being, the author being Moses, um, that God keeps his promises. He, when, he, when he promises to do something, he takes the uh, measures necessary to ensure that it comes about. So that's where we're picking up. We, in fact, last week we looked at... Uh, and let me just go back there briefly. We looked at verse three last week, uh, one through um, one through nine, actually. But in verse three, here's the promises to Abraham. And again, there's there is a, a significance here for us as Christians because ultimately these promises are fulfilled in Christ. But here here are the promises to Abram, um, who will later be called Abraham. Abram at this point, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he says, I will bless those who bless you. This this is the blessing that you're going to walk in. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse. Or as we talked about last week, those who treat you lightly or esteem you lightly um, will be cursed. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is, again, the gospel according to Moses, uh, as presented here uh, to Abram. God says, all the families of the earth, not, not just your seed, not just your, your direct physical lineage, but all the families of the earth will be blessed, but they will be blessed through your seed. And last week we looked at how um, Paul explains that in Galatians 3 as being fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the seed. In fact, Paul makes the point uh, that the term seed, or some translations will say descendants, or something like that, but it's singular. And Paul says that seed is Christ. Is Christ. So the, the blessing spoken here to Abram is eventually realized only in Christ. So we can just sum it up, um, the big picture this way. God says, in your seed all the nations of the, of the earth will be blessed, or all the tribes or families of the earth will be blessed. What he's saying is, the way of blessing is Christ alone. In your seed, Christ, Jesus, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. Uh, And again, as we talked about last week, meaning that there is no other way of blessing from God. It is through Jesus and through Jesus alone. All right, so I wanted to go back and read the promises again because, um, and and there are going to be more coming, but um, this is what we're talking about being protected in the verses we're dealing with today. This is what, at least from human perspective, this is what is jeopardized in, in what plays out here. The promises of God. And, you know, if, if you were writing, I don't know, if this were a novel or something like that or a mystery television show or something like that, you, you would at this point as you're reading about what Abraham's going through, 
um, you'd be thinking, uh, wow, it, are these things going to happen? You know, I mean, maybe, maybe Abram's not going to make it. Maybe he's going to get killed. He's going into some dangerous territory, going through some dangerous circumstances. Um, and all the while, he's not getting younger. Sarah's not getting younger. You know, she's, she's barren, and, and uh, here they are. They're, they're traveling. It, can they make it? Can they do it? And, well, we'll see, all right? And we'll see how, I think. So I do want to say this uh, uh, in regard to Abraham's actions here, which we're about to look at. Um, and y- y'all have heard me say this a lot of times, but I think the safest thing always, and we'll, we'll, you know, sometimes we'll speculate some, but always the safest thing is to stay with what we know, right? I mean, as far as, as, far as really... Um, being sure about something, stating something with, with, uh, with assurance. Uh, we, we have to stay with what the Scripture uh, actually reveals to us. So when we get into um, Abram, I started to say Moses, when we get into Abram's actions here, it's impossible to know for sure what his motives are. Although we can speculate a little bit, we'll do that in a moment, uh, and I'll be clear about that, but it's impossible to know for sure. But here's what we do know. Whatever Abram does, and in spite of what Abram does, God intervened to protect the promises. God makes sure that his word comes to pass. And again, that has uh, great and comforting uh, implications for you and I as Christians. God sees to it that what he determines, what he promises, actually comes to pass. So look at verse 10 again. Um, there was a famine in the land. That is, Abram is sojourning in the land of Canaan. And, and by the way, even the idea of, of sojourner uh, is relative to us because we're called sojourners in the New Testament. And the idea is being a temporary resident. So here, Abram is a, uh, well, he's even a sojourner in, in the land that is promised to him because at this point, uh, he's, he's not receiving the possession of it. And then he goes down to sojourn in the land of Egypt for a while. He's a temporary resident in the land of, of Egypt. So there was a famine in the land, that is in the land of Canaan. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife. Now, here's, here's just kind of the picture. God is or Abram, rather, is following God, where God is leading him. God takes him into the land of Canaan. And now there's a great famine there. Now, I mean, this is just kind of given to us without a whole lot of detail here, but even that uh, would be cause for some concern, wouldn't it? If, uh, If you have traveled there based on faith, and you get there, and all of a sudden, the land is stricken with famine. Now, you'd be tempted, even at that point, to say, hmm, am I, have I really done the right thing? Am I really where I'm supposed to be, right? Now, I'm, I'm, that's just application. It doesn't say that Abraham was thinking that way. But uh, we would certainly be tempted to think that way, wouldn't we? God says, come, go to this land, and you follow him, and you go, and you get there. And bam, famine. So they've got to do something. They've got to go somewhere uh, for the duration of the famine. So they go down to the land of Egypt. And verse 11 says, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Well, a little bit of uh, self-preservation there. That that does sound pretty selfish, doesn't it? Um, Look over um, just briefly in verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 13. This this seemed to be... um, the way Abram would operate in these circumstances. In fact, this is another instance of that that, Lord willing, we'll get to deal with later. But in chapter 20, verse 13, 
And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, that is to Sarah, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. And, of course, he's doing that, um, as he says here in chapter 12, to, to uh, spare his own life uh, because he's thinking they'll see that she's beautiful and they'll kill me if they know she's my wife. So, so this seems to be his... Uh, uh, something that they did wherever they they went that they sensed danger, and and so he's and I point that out because you might think it's a little odd that this happens twice, but uh, judging from that verse, that's that was uh, that was the way they handled these situations. Now, what is what is Abram doing here? What is his motivation? And here's where we we're going to speculate a, a little bit, um, possibly. It is just total selfishness, right? I mean, he's looking out for himself. He's saying, we're, we're going to go in there, and they're going to want to take you, and so they're going to kill me, so here's what you got to do. you got to uh, tell them you're my sister, not my wife, but my sister, which, by the way, was, uh, was the truth. It just wasn't the whole truth. She was a sister, but, not, uh, but she was also his wife. Um, so it was kind of one of those half-truth type of uh, deceptions. So that's one option. Abraham is just totally look out for number one here. Here's another option that I think is probably more likely, but either one is problematic. But uh, it may be that what Abraham is doing here um, is trying to ensure himself that the promises of, of having seed and his seed being great and his seed being the means of blessing to the whole earth, probably he's just trying to ensure that those things actually come to pass. Because if he gets killed at this point, then all of that is over. Right? And option number one, you know, that Abram's just doing... He, totally acting out of selfishness here and trying to preserve his own life, that option, he would, he would just kind of have to be totally forgetting verse 3. That is, forgetting the blessings of God, the, the promise of protection. That's certainly a possibility because we, we have a tendency to do that. God blesses. God makes promises. And we get in circumstances And we're tempted to forget God's promise of blessing and protection. And I love the account of David when he's about to face Goliath. And he goes before Saul and he rehearses deliverances of God in his life. The lion and the bear, right? And God delivered me from the mouth of the lion and from the bear... And God will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. I mean, David's rehearsing what God has done in his life, how he is blessed and how he has protected and delivered. And through that, he's confident that God's going to do it again. Well, if this is just strictly Abraham trying to preserve his own life, uh, then it would seem that he's forgotten those kinds of things. He's not even thinking about the promise in chapter 3, I will bless you and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who dishonor you. The second option, as I said, is still problematic, but I think it puts Abram in a little better light if it's true. And that is that he has in mind the promises of verse 3 and he's just concerned that this could be the end of the line. If, if I don't live through this then the promises of God that God has uttered concerning me cannot come to pass. So here's what we're going to do. When we get in a situation like this you're going to tell them that you're my sister. And they will spare my life because of you. Well, uh, as I said, that one would, would put Abram in a little bit better light because he's concerned for the fulfillment of the promises of God. 
But it would still mean that he's trying to help God, right? And that he's not trusting God the way that he should. That's ironic, isn't it? Because he walked away from everything that he knew in Ur of the Chaldees. Just on God's Word. Come out. Leave. Leave your, your father's house, your kindred, your homeland. You're going to a place that I'm going to show you, that I'm going to give to you. And Abram walked away from that based on God's Word, based on God's promise that he had an inheritance for him. So, it would seem strange at this point that he would think God can't deliver or that he, there's a possibility that he can't deliver. But then that's the way our minds work a lot of times, isn't it? I mean, you, you think about it for a moment. Any Christian, what we've already been through in just coming to Christ, I mean, the miracle of the new birth, the miracle of regeneration, we should never doubt God again on anything. And yet, we do. To our own shame, uh, but we do. So, uh, at any rate, that, that looks like that's uh, possibly the case here that Abram is trying to ensure that the promises come to pass. And of course, the problem with that is is that it reveals a lack of trust in a God who is all trustworthy. And I think that's the reason um, behind the deception here. And that's another irony, too, by the way, to walk with the living God and live a life devoted to Him and looking forward to inheriting the promises from, from God and then engaging in this kind of Deception. Now, the whole thing kind of backfires on him anyway. It, it, the custom was in a situation like that that there would be some negotiation. She would say, this is my sister, or this is my brother, rather. And um, then there would be some kind of negotiation that would take place, and uh, possibly they would kind of uh, avoid the whole uh, bad circumstance. Pharaoh doesn't seem interested in negotiating. And what he does is just take Sarai into his harem. Probably not exactly what, uh, what Abram was, was counting on. So look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. By the way, just as Abram suspected. Verse 15 and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Pharaoh is, um, has taken Abram's wife and thinking that, it's, uh, that she's his sister. And because of that, he begins to bless Abram, deal well with him. So Abram is uh, actually, while he's going through this trial, this hardship, he's actually prospering. That's kind of like we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. Paul says in Romans 5, tribulation produces, or suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, right? So we go through, as we sojourn in this life, we, we go through hardships. We get confronted with all, all manner of, uh, uh, or all forms of tribulation. And yet, we prosper in the midst of them. Now, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel this morning, so when I say prosper, I'm not talking about getting rich financially. But I'm saying the same thing Paul is talking about in Romans. We, we grow. Due to suffering, we grow. Maybe, maybe there's a picture of that here as Abram in this hard circumstance, in this trial, in this testing, is prospered. 
In verse 17, But the Lord afflicted or struck Pharaoh and his house. Now, already we're, we're being reminded, Abraham may have forgotten. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he's just, as we said, trying to make the promises happen. Whatever the case is there, God hasn't forgotten. So God says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who esteem you lightly or dishonor you. And so verse 17 says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and says, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Needless to say, uh, Pharaoh's a little bit um, angry at this point. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Notice all the possessions went with him. He left and... uh, uh, apparently even left with uh, everything that he got from Pharaoh that he prospered with in that land. And verse uh, chapter 13 goes on to tell us he returned uh, to the land of Canaan. He went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. That's the southern region of the land of Canaan. Verse 2, chapter 13, verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been from the beginning, or at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, short story in the close of that little narrative. Because of the famine in the land, Abram went into Egypt, got himself into a situation... With, uh, with his wife, and God delivered him. God prospered him, even in the midst of that situation, and then delivered him out of it. And he returns to the land of Canaan, back to where he was before, and does what he did before, worship. Worship. Once again, remember that from, uh, you look back at... Um, Verse 7, chapter 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord and had a, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And that's where he started. So He goes to sojourn in Egypt and then comes back to that place and once again worships the Lord, this time with another uh, testimony of God's power. Previously, he'd been delivered out of idolatry, taken to the promised land, delivered from famine as he went to sojourn in Egypt, prospered there, and then delivered out of Egypt, returned to the promised land, and again, worshiping the Lord. Now, I want you to notice some some things here because there's some, uh, there's some foreshadowing here you may have already picked up on. And uh, this is one of the fascinating things about Scripture. You, you, uh, because it's all telling one big story, a lot of times you see the big story portrayed in a short form, uh, in types, in shadows that, that, that foreshadow other events, and ultimate events. So there's some typology here, some foreshadowing. For example, um, what we see in the life of Abraham here foreshadows what's going to happen with the children of Israel centuries later, right? They suffer in the land of Egypt. Uh, Initially, in fact, initially the, uh, the sons of Isaac or Jacob, rather, go down into Egypt. Seventy, Seventy souls go down into Egypt because of what? 
Famine, right? Joseph is already there because he's been sold into slavery. And the remaining sons of uh, Jacob go down into Egypt to seek relief from the famine. They even wind up having to take uh, Benjamin in the end, the youngest. And they go down. Once they find out who Joseph is, the whole family moves down. They go down into Egypt because of the famine. While they're in Egypt, God prospers them and they multiply like crazy. And you say, God prospers them. I thought they were slaves. Well, they did become slaves during that period. But even while that was going on, God was fulfilling His promise in multiplying them. Abraham Abraham was promised that his seed would be, his descendants would be just like the, the grains of sand on the seashore, innumerable. And that begins to happen as they're in the land of Egypt. And then God brings plagues on the house of Pharaoh, doesn't He? Just like He does here. And that's foreshadowed here. Verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Well, later you see that in, in leading up to the Exodus. God brings plagues on Pharaoh's house. And what happens here in the story with Abram, after, even after Pharaoh has given Abram um, great possessions, because of all that's taken place and because of the plagues, he commands him to leave. Get out. Take her, verse 19, take her and go. It's a command. In fact, he sees to it. Verse 20, Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. They Take your possessions, get out of our land. And that's precisely what the Pharaoh of the Exodus does. When God struck all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. That was the straw, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And Pharaoh commanded Moses and all of the children of Israel to get out. And the Egyptians even gave them supplies for the trip. So they left. They basically spoiled Egypt and left. And they were driven, driven out. So there's a foreshadowing of that here. And, and, and that's significant, isn't it? Because Moses is the author here. So uh, just like we've said before, if you think about Moses' contemporary readers as he's writing these things, they're going to they're gonna connect these dots. You know, this is just like us. We came into Egypt because of famine. There was... Danger for the males. Remember when Pharaoh ordered all the male children be killed? That's what Abram was concerned about here, right? That he wasn't going to be able to survive this trip into Egypt. So this is just like us. We, We come into the land of Egypt because of famine. There's danger for the males. God brings plagues on the house of Pharaoh, and we are ordered out of Egypt. And they're looking back, and they're seeing how God fulfills His promises how God ensures that what He promises will come to pass. He he would not let Abram die in Egypt. And He would not let the nation of Israel be extinguished in Egypt. And Moses' contemporary readers could, could read this and draw great encouragement from it, knowing that ultimately He's going to bring them into the promised land to worship Him just like he did with Abram. But there's also something even bigger than that at work here. There's a picture here of the church. And I think, or you could just say believers, that I think every Christian probably picks up on, and we've already been talking about some of it. Abram is initially, right, he's, he's in the Ur of Chaldees kind of, uh, at least the, the way it's related is kind of minding his own business, as it were. And God calls him out of there. And we know that that was the land of idolatry and that Abram and his fathers were idolaters. And God essentially says, you know, I choose you and you're coming out. 
come out of there and follow me. Go where I'm going to tell you to go because I've got an inheritance for you. And so there's a a picture there of resurrection. Life from the dead. Abram is an idolater, literally walking, living in spiritual death, alienated from God. Until God interrupts his life and says, you're mine, you're coming with me, follow me, because you know what? I've decided to bless you with an inheritance. And every Christian can identify that, right? I mean, we're just, you're just kind of going about your own business in life, caught up in the idolatries of this world, and of course, at the root of all idolatries is self-worship, isn't it? I mean, that's the big one. That's the one that undergirds all of them. So, there we are. We're just going about life, living for self, groping about in the dark, and all of a sudden, God turns the lights on. <laughs> Bam! You know, you're, you're mine. I'm calling you out. You're coming with me because I've got an inheritance for you, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. You're going to walk with me. And you're going to receive an inheritance. And so, that's our exodus, right? Out of, out of sin, out of Egypt, out of spiritual Egypt, out of sin and darkness and death into light, life. That's spiritual resurrection. It's what we are talking about when we talk about being born Again, as Jesus put it in John 3. Spiritual resurrection. Life from the dead. And then there's something else being foreshadowed here. And that is the work of Christ Himself. Jesus left the glory of heaven, took on the form of a servant. That is, he became a human being and sojourned. Remember what I said earlier, sojourner, or to sojourn is the idea of temporary resident, right? And Jesus is not of this world, and he didn't come from this world or out of this world in the sense that the world produced him came from heaven, sent by the Father to sojourn in this world. In fact, John, in his gospel, in the first chapter of John's gospel, puts it this way, He tabernacled among us. The eternal Word of God. The Word became flesh and tabernacled. He pitched His tent among us for a while. And John says, we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. Full, full of grace and truth. And the writer of Hebrews says that he did it for the joy that was set before him. That is, there's something to inherit. And he came, Jesus came, and sojourned in the world until the time of his exodus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, which is uh, um, recorded in three out of the four Gospels, and uh, I should have made a note of the... I believe it was Mark who used that very term. I should have uh, put a note here. You can can check me out on it. One One of the Gospel writers says that at the Mount of Transfiguration, um, Moses and Elijah and Jesus spoke of His departure. So, and if you're familiar with that story, you know that when when Jesus took uh, James and John and Peter 
up on the mountain with him, and he was transfigured before their eyes. And as they saw him, uh, saw his glory in a unique display that apparently nobody else was allowed to see. And it was, in a sense, the coming of the kingdom, because just prior to that, he had, he had told them, he, he said, I'm telling you, some of you will not even have tasted of death until you see the kingdom of God coming in power. And it was right after that that they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he was transfigured before them. Well, Moses and Elijah appeared there. Moses, representing, of course, the law, Elijah representing the prophets. So what you have there on the Mount of Transfiguration is a representation of all of Old Testament Scripture, the Law and the Prophets. The way that God, or the ways that God dealt with His people in the past. You know, through through the giving of the Law and through... Um, Oracle, right? Through speaking to and through the prophets. And they're talking with Jesus. And when the vision is coming to an end, in fact, Peter gets kind of excited and does what he would do a lot of times, talk before he thought. And, and he, he says, look, we, we should build three tabernacles. One, Lord, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I guess the idea was, um, you know, because that... That concept comes from the Feast of Tabernacles. And I guess the idea was, you and, you and Moses and Elijah, we, we'll set up tabernacles for you and we'll just all kind of bask here in the glory of God. And Peter wasn't comprehending that Jesus was the glory of God. And so it's not like three leaders on equal terms on, or equal status. You know, Moses, Elijah, Jesus. In fact... The fact that they were not equal gets <laughs> illustrated quite well there. After Peter says that, a voice comes from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him! And the disciples look up and the Scripture tells us that they only saw Jesus. There was nobody left at that point. Now what a great picture of the fulfillment of all of Old Testament Scripture. Moses and the law. And then Jesus fulfills it all. And so He's all that's left to look to now as God's representative. But during that time when Moses and Elijah and Jesus were speaking, we're told that they spoke of His Exodus. That's what it literally says in the Greek. It's usually translated departure, something like that. They spoke of his exodus. Why would why would the gospel writer refer to Jesus' death as the Exodus? I mean, here's here's a Jew, the gospel writer. Um, and, and I mean, you know, he's writing, and he's writing his hearers primarily, readers. It's a Jewish culture. It's all so everybody's going to know immediately. I mean, they're going to connect immediately. They know he's talking about the Old Testament story, the Old Testament event of the children of Israel being delivered from Egypt. That's the Exodus, right? And he says they spoke Moses and Elijah. They spoke of Jesus. Exodus, and he's talking about his death and resurrection and ascension to glory. Why would he call it his Exodus? And it's because it is another victorious deliverance. But really, we need to say it a little bit stronger than that, don't we? Because it's not just another, it is the ultimate. Victorious deliverance provided by God. In fact, it is the one 
that all of the others point to. When Abram comes out of Egypt, back into the land of inheritance, the promised land, where he can once again call upon the name of the Lord. And then hundreds of years later, when the Israelites come out of Egypt and are taken into the promised land, those things are just pictures. I mean, they're real events. They really happen. They're historical events. But they picture another event that is coming that is the ultimate, the actual deliverance of God. And that's what takes place in the suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That is His exodus from the earth. He came into the world, right? The Father sent Him. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? He came, and He came into the world. And as John said, He dwelt among us or tabernacled among us. And He lived out of life of perfect righteousness, and then suffered and died. He exited. And in His life, or in His death rather, and His resurrection, and what what is resurrection, by the way, but life from the dead, or exit out of death into life. And then in His ascension, He literally exits the world and back to glory. And I don't know what Moses and Elijah and Jesus... I mean, they were talking about that. Scripture tells us that on the Mount of Transfiguration. But what specifically they were saying, I don't know, but maybe maybe that's what they were... Moses and Elijah were talking about is how Jesus is fulfilling everything that they looked forward to and everything that they wrote about that we should look forward to, that, that the Jews of old should look forward to, and how Jesus was bringing all that to pass in the ultimate sense... The ultimate deliverance of God. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. So let me be emphatic about two things here. Yes, these are historical events. These are not mere stories so that we can take home, you know, what's, what's the moral of this story? Take home a moral and learn from it and learn, you know, not to lie like Abram did and that kind of thing. That's probably all good. I mean, you don't, you don't want to lie like Abram did and so forth. But that, it's not merely about that. These are real historical events. But they have this aspect that they foreshadow something greater. An ultimate deliverance. And that is fulfilled in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Just as Paul says in Galatians, He is the seed. So when God says, in your seed, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. That is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When he says, to your, in verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. Well, as far as physical descendants and as far as the literal physical land of Canaan, uh, that was accomplished later when the nation of Israel took possession of the land. But again, these things just foreshadow what Christ did. And the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus when exiting this world brings many sons to glory. And one day, you and I will exit this world. You know, we lost two friends this week. And our time's coming. And we will exit this world either by physical death or by the return of Christ when He comes in glory and takes us to glory. What assurance do we we have of that? Well, we have the same assurance that Abram had. The Word of God. Why should we believe that? Because of the character of God. God is trustworthy. And because of the power of God. God is able to do what He promises. 
and he doesn't need our help. God protects his promises. That was good news for Abram. That was good news for the children of Israel later because they messed up a lot too, didn't they? And that's good news for you and I because we can't pull it off either. But we can trust Him. We can trust His Word. Would you stand, please? The promise of salvation, and by salvation I mean being reconciled to God, put in right relationship with Him, to truly know Him and live with Him eternally. That inheritance, that promise is only realized through Jesus Christ. Just as He said, He's the way, the truth, and the life Nobody comes to the Father but through Him. I just ask you as we close today to uh, consider where you stand with Christ because that is the issue. And I pray, as I will pray here in a moment, that if there's anybody in this room today who does not know Him in truth, that this would be the day that you surrender. Surrender to His will. Surrender to His Lordship and know His love and grace. Come to God through trusting Christ. Through trusting Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for these precious promises and for Your keeping power, Your power to protect Your promises all the way through, to see them through to the end, even to the extent that You are the author and finisher, completer of our faith. And as Jesus made clear repeatedly in John 6 that all those the Father had given Him, You will raise up at the last day. And we're so grateful that it's all grace-based since we cannot earn any of it. And Lord, I do pray If there's anybody here today who does not know You in truth, pray, Lord, asking that You open their hearts. May they know Your love, Your mercy, Your grace, and submit to You today for their eternal good and for Your glory. May it be so. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dismissed.